of the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that all may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Second reading is Luke chapter 10. Thirty-eight to forty-two. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a name, woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, "Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself?" Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord replied, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And the third reading is from Ephesians chapter 6, 1 to 4. And I've lost my bookmark. I'm sure it's in here. Here it is. (laughs) Uh, Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is first commandment of the promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Jesus said, when you go and pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And indeed, uh, two weeks ago, uh, we looked at the foundational importance to Christian discipleship of meeting 
God our Father alone, secretly even, in prayer. Jesus said, Where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And last week we looked at the role and the significance of prayer partnerships, of prayer triplets, spiritual friendship. We looked at the significance of that to Christian discipleship. Jesus also said, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That text uh, comes as little surprise uh, to us. It's sobering, to be sure, but we already take absolutely for granted an assumption behind this saying, an assumption that culturally would have been absolutely scandalous to Christ's audience on that day. That assumption being that actually the gospel calls for an individual response. The individual is the indivisible unit of faith according to the Christian gospel. We respond to it or not individually. This would have been scandalous. In fact, indeed, profoundly offensive and unsettling to Christ's first audience for an ancient audience would always assume that the household was the indivisible unit of faith. According to this assumption, everyone in the household, by definition, has the same faith as the head of the household, which was usually the patriarch, sometimes a matriarch. Indeed, we can see this assumption that it is the household that is the basic and indivisible unit of faith. We can see that assumption in much of the Bible. For in the ancient world, faith was not a private affair, not something individuals pursued individualistically, but rather a public affair, a matter of community. Now, households in the ancient world could be very big things. The patriarch, the head of his family, together with his wife or wives, his many children, their wives and husbands and many children, slaves, male and female, their spouses and children, as well as, of course, the patriarch's siblings, their wives and children, their children's spouses, wives and children, and their slaves' spouses, wives and children, so on and so forth. A household could be a very big thing. At one point in Genesis, we are told that Abraham's household happened to include 318 men who were trained in warfare. Or similarly, imagine Jacob and his household. They are um, described towards the end of Genesis chapter 6 as numbering 70 persons, not counting in-laws or slaves, 
but only those directly descended from him. In total, of course, the actual household of Jacob, as it traveled from Canaan down to Egypt, would have been at least three times that number. But the faith of the patriarch was the faith of the household in ancient Near Eastern terms. You worshipped the gods of your household, the gods of your patriarch, that is to say, the head of your household. Thus, for example... When Abraham was given circumcision as a sign of the covenant that the Lord God had made with him, he circumcised himself and his entire household. Every male, we are told, either born or bought with money. Sons and foreigners, probably considerably more than 400 males. And Abraham himself was... 99 years of age when he was circumcised. And when the Lord God Almighty saved the Israelites up out of the land of slavery, up out of the land of Egypt, it was by way of a household movement. The Lord passed over Egypt and Israel and put to death the firstborn of every household, except those households that had observed the feast, the Passover sacrificing a lamb, the head of the household sacrificing a lamb and brushing the blood of the lamb on the pillars and lintel of the door frames of the house. The feast was held in households and God saved households, the households of faith, a faith manifest in obedience. And thereafter, the Passover was to be celebrated in households every year, the children asking, what is the meaning of this observance? And every year, the parents answering, it is the Passover sacrificed to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And when a man named Achan And him, the head of a household, when he stole from God devoted goods, untouchable plunder from the sacking of Jericho, silver and gold and a robe from Babylon, not only him, but his entire household was considered guilty. And they were burned and stoned and buried beneath rocks. Achan, his sons and daughters, his cattle and donkey and sheep, his tent and all that he had. The household had to be devoted to the Lord in one way or another. Thus too, Joshua said to all Israel, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household... We will serve the Lord. And even in New Testament times, it was commonly assumed that the basic and indivisible unit of faith was the household rather than the individual. When Paul and Silas were jailed in the city of Philippi, and by way of some extraordinary set of events, the jailer himself came to faith in Jesus Christ, this is how Luke describes it for us in Acts chapter 16. The jailer asked, Sirs! What must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas replied, 
believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then Paul and Silas continued speaking the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Verse 33, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his home and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Likewise, uh, Jesus taught households in households. In our Luke reading this morning, we hear about Jesus being invited into the household of Martha, the matriarch, the matriarch of the household. Nevertheless, and true to her culture, Martha did not attend the teaching time, but rather devoted herself to the many preparations and actions needed in order for her household to provide the appropriate hospitality to such an honored dignitary and his entourage. What scandalizes Martha as she's going about all of this business is that her sister, her younger sister Mary, was acting like a man, sitting like a disciple, like a student at the teacher's feet, listening to what he had to say. So extraordinary is this turn of events that Luke records for us the outcome, that it is Mary who is vindicated for doing the right thing, not Martha. Women, too, can be disciples of Jesus. And as churches sprouted into existence in the early years after Pentecost, those churches came together to pray and to worship, to do church, in other words, in households in the homes of those who owned homes large enough to accommodate a group. Paul's letter to Philemon, for example, is addressed to Philemon, and also Aphia and uh, um, Achpus, and to the church that met in his home. And as we heard also this morning uh, from our uh, Bible readings, both Moses and Paul assume that all heads of households, are, ipso facto, teachers of the Bible. As the book of Proverbs opens, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not cast aside your mother's teaching. Heads of households are, ipso facto, Bible teachers. Um, Honor your father and your mother, for it will go well with you. Well, in recent times, say in the last 50 to 100 years, evangelical churches around the world have rediscovered the power of households in communicating the faith, in being places of evangelism and discipleship. So even though it is indeed the individual and not the household that is the basic indivisible unit of the community of faith, yet and nevertheless, households are tremendously important as incubators of shared faith. And this is our lesson for today. It's about the third scale of discipleship 
I'm wanting to talk about home groups and Bible studies, what they are and why they're important and how they might work. Most evangelical churches today have midweek small groups that, that in which um, uh, homes in which they meet, homes of the parishioners. And these groups uh, receive a variety of names, home groups, Bible studies, fellowship groups, cell groups, outpost groups, growth groups, life groups, etc., etc. And they probably vary enormously in terms of the details of what they do, but in essence, they are all very similar. They are regular meetings of Christians in private homes. The size of the group, whatever can meet comfortably in a suburban lounge room, to read the Bible together and to pray and then have supper. And uh, just in case you're listening to us uh, this morning from outside of Western Australia, in Perth, supper is afternoon tea that you have at the end of the evening. The point that I want to make today is that the home group is, in many ways, a better expression of church than church. And next week, I want to show that the weekend congregation, that church, is in many ways a better expression of home group than home group. It's not one or the other, but both. At church, we might know everybody's name, but we don't have to. There are many churches in Perth with more than 400 members. There are many churches in Perth with congregations of 1,000 members. And once a congregation has more than 400 members, it is, moving, it is moved beyond a point where anyone could know everyone's name. Here at St. Barnabas, uh, we have somewhere between 12 and 24 people meeting for worship on Saturday afternoons at 5 p.m. out of a possible pool of about 30 and here on Sunday mornings, we have between 60 and 120 people meeting for worship at 10 a.m. out of a possible pool of about 150. A home group, in contrast, is much more likely to number somewhere between just 6 and 10. It is, by its very nature, a form of doing church, prayer and worship, in which everyone can know everyone else, indeed, very well, intimately, for that is the point. A home group is not, perhaps, an occasion in which anything at all could be said, N not perhaps the place for any question or any comment, but it is, in contrast to weekend church, a place of very considerable intimacy and depth of relating, a place for long-lasting friendships, a place for searching questions and in-depth discussion, a place for prayer and prayer ministry and for learning about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In some ways, for all of this, a much better place to do this than church at the weekend. I uh, surrendered my life uh, to Jesus uh, in my uh, mid-20s, um, 1992, and actually immediately began worshipping at this church, St. Barnabas, having been introduced to this church by an old school friend. At that time, uh, the Reverend Dr. John Yates was the rector, and everything was new to me, um, having really had basically a, a, an unchurched upbringing. 
everything was new. Soon after joining the church, it was suggested to me that I join a home group. I didn't know what a home group was, nor did I even think to ask. I just assumed it was the thing to do because everyone was doing it. I, I remember somebody asking John Yates on my behalf if, if I could join his group, his home group. I can't remember who it was, but I think it might have been Blake Stacy, who might have been the home group coordinator back then, quite probably, yeah. John, uh, John Yates, the Lord bless him, answered somewhat characteristically by squinting his eyes and saying, I'll pray about it. <laughs> quite right too, and God bless him, and I thank God for his example to me. Um, but having prayed about it, he obviously felt able to say yes, and I did join his home group, uh, the Bible study that met in uh, John and Donna's home every Friday night. And in some ways, uh, th th that particular group was primarily a prayer group. After a time of singing and praise and, and worship and prayer, uh, we'd, we'd sit down and uh, in turn, each of us would have an opportunity to talk about how life was going for us. Given that it was only a week since our last meeting, often we wouldn't have very much to say, and that was fine. Sometimes we came with something big, significant, something that we really needed to talk about, something that we really needed prayer about. Either way, the, the group would pray in turn for each member. And the, the, the prayers weren't simply a restatement before God of matters already discussed and decided upon as, upon as though uh, God was present but had drifted off into a doze and gently needed bringing back up to speed. No. They were significant prayer times in which both the heart of the person and the will of God were explored in depth. People were wise and sensitive as to where the Spirit was leading and what the Spirit was saying. This was prayer ministry rather than simply a token prayer time at the end of a time of fellowship. Really praying into matters rather than just simply praying about matters. I, I had encountered as a new Christian, by the very great mercy and kindness of God, I had encountered mature Christians who really knew how to pray. And as you might well imagine... Encountering Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit every Friday evening in the fellowship of loving believers who'd taken the time to get to know me well, it was powerfully and wonderfully addictive. And that's the beauty of an addiction to Jesus. With increasing dependence, you gain increasing freedom, not increasing captivity. And so I longed for and looked forward to each and every Friday night, thrilled when it was finally time to go to home group. And the Yates home group eventually became the Plaisto home group, which morphed into the Cullingford home group. We knew each other well, and we still do. Unlike weekend church, those home groups were places where, we could sh where I could share, as a young Christian, I could share with men and women both, my age as well as people older and younger, and I could share with them my struggles, my fears, my questions, my doubts, my confusions, and, and I could listen and learn as they sh shared about theirs as well. Those groups 
perhaps weren't Bible studies, strictly speaking, in the sense that we weren't gathering in order to open the Bible, to study, say, chapter 6 of such and such a book, because last week we studied chapter 5 of such and such a book. But nothing wrong with that. Indeed, it is a fantastic thing to do. And I, I speak to encourage it. It's just not the only thing to do. But just because our group was primarily a prayer group didn't mean, of course, that we didn't open our Bibles. As I said last week, quoting Peter Adam, quoting someone else, which is more important? Praying or reading the Bible? Which is more important? Breathing in or breathing out? Prayer and Bible reading are organically related. If you have people reading the Bible, it's going to be difficult to stop them from praying. And if you have people praying, the Bible will be opened. And so it was with us all of the time, every week. But perhaps more reactively than proactively. Both are good. And there are many other methods besides. But I, I think home groups, growth groups, cell groups, life groups, Bible studies, call them what you will, they work best when they understand themselves as mini-church and therefore include, to paraphrase Paul's words to the church in Colossa, letting the message of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts, devoting ourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Singing, praising and worshipping, the Bible being read, taught, Applied with wisdom, experience, knowledge, insight, and responsibility. Prayers and petitions of all kinds being said. Prayer ministry. The gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in evidence. Testimonies and prophecies. All that is encouraging to faith and virtue. Fellowship meals. Hospitality. Others being invited in to come and see. Money being given and lent as needs be. Collections being taken up for particular needs. Meals being made and offered to others in need. And other needs being responded to uh, wisely and carefully. Guest speakers from outside the group uh, being invited in time to time, from time to time. If it can happen in church, it can happen at home group. But, and I guess this is part of my key point, that equation cannot be so easily reversed. Church on the weekend, we cannot and we do not offer each participant the same degree of attention as we can at home group. We can have here on a Sunday morning extemporaneous prayer times, but not as easily. We can do and we do do have question and discussion times, times indeed where, where prophecy might be shared, but suddenly that's a vastly more complex and risky endeavor when we're dealing with a public gathering and where we have no real control as to who, say, is or isn't present. As Paul notes in his Corinthian correspondence, people bring all kinds of needs and problems to church that actually need to be satisfied or solved at home. Indeed, Paul's letters to the Corinthian church and also to Timothy, he makes distinctions between what can happen when church is gathered and what might happen 
at home, in contrast to at church. St. Barnabas has many home groups and Bible studies. Uh, Tim and Naomi Flavel and uh, Christian uh, are our home group coordinators. Our home groups and Bible studies are, like the people of St. Barnabas themselves, scattered all over the Perth metropolitan area. And they are quite various in terms of their character and activity. They don't all pursue the same approach. And indeed, in many ways, we would not expect them to pursue the same approach. To be invited into a home group is, in many ways, to be invited into the faith community of that household. And households differ in terms of home culture, and thus also with respect to how they express their Christian faith. So we wouldn't necessarily expect all home groups uh, to be alike. If you're not a member of a home group, I urge you to prayerfully consider joining one. And if you are in a position to host a home group, I urge you to prayerfully consider hosting one. And thereafter, to talk to Christian, Tim, or Naomi about that. But now I'd like to conclude by restating my point. In some ways, home groups are a better expression of church than church. And next week, I want to show that the weekend congregational church is, in many ways, a better expression of home group than home group. Both are important. And when both are attended to, it is a massive lift in the spiritual health of any Christian, of any household, of any congregation. I, I know of at least one church that found home groups so vitalizing, so vital to the spiritual health of their church that they canceled Sunday morning worship altogether and focused exclusively on household group meetings as a return to what they saw as biblical faith. As you'd imagine, that church basically just disappeared like spilt water into the cracks of a pavement. And many of us likewise, many of us know Christians who, hurt and disillusioned by the innumerable and never-ending problems and difficulties of congregational life, they have retreated from church and all the hypocrites gathered therein, such as myself, they have retreated from church into a faith that manifests itself exclusively in home group meetings. It's a powerful temptation. I've felt it myself. But again, this is usually correlated with poor spiritual outcomes. Both home groups and congregational life are important to our spiritual health. And it's important also actually not to confuse the two. So then, next week, the fourth scale, meeting together in congregations or churches, and then the week after that, engaging with the citywide and worldwide church. And the Lord be with you.